welcome back. In part two, we sit with the concept of accelerationism, how it is a cultural in its original form, in Bob's opinion, its problems, its appropriation by far-right groups, and the related sticky problems of capitalism and neoliberalism that are currently associated with accelerationist thinking in these circles. The conversation from here continues to expand. Bob also discusses the explosion of digital technologies and how contemporary spiritual currents and esoteric movements are enmeshed with technology. This leads us into a more detailed exploration of the CCRU and conspiracy theories, as well as the irony of how the esoteric concept of perennialism, or the idea that there is one everlasting truth with a capital T, has gained traction with some magical practitioners. As a little tangent, we also talk about trauma, as this is the elephant in the room when discussing Slenderman, as well as the current focus by many on healing and how esoteric currents and neoliberalist viewpoints have also influenced the discourse around healing and wellness. Lastly, Bob shares his current work into the works of J.G. Ballard and Simon Sellers. Bob sees these works as esoteric texts that add to his interests of researching not only historiographical aspects, but also what is happening now in modern esoteric currents. It's a lot to take in, but I think it's worth it. I hope you do too. Back to the discussion. You know, I'd like to stop here, if you wouldn't mind, to kind of stand still about... um, or stand still with these with these ideas because my if if we want to call it a goal here with this with, the, with this episode one of the goals anyway is to try to give concrete uh, examples of what it is that we're talking about so and I want to I'd like to circle back around to the whole idea of acceleration about virtuality and identity but before we do that I wanted to mention something that you were talking about uh, how fictions become real mm-hmm. and how this has already been happening for for decades now for even longer probably uh, one example that you gave a real world example real life example was the tobacco industry uh, yeah. in the United States talking about how smoking was good for you and the doctors would would uh, would advise people to smoke cigarettes if they had a cough or, you know, those types of things. These now, uh, I mean, we might not see it in the same light as Slender Man, but in, in, a, in, a, in essence, we're talking about fictions here mm-hmm. with the, with the c- cigarette smoking. Um, and I thought that was a good thing that you mentioned in your, in your thesis that, you know, it's not only just about the, you know, the, the quote unquote magical or quote unquote occult, uh, things that we're talking about here. Uh, it's also these, these things that you, yeah, you wouldn't probably think of, uh, immediately when you're starting to think about fictions becoming real. Yeah. And of course with cigarette smoking, you have, it's, uh, it's a diseased twin of climate change denialism, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, because what you have is you have powerful vested interests 
you know, the boroughs may say are um, are in allegiance with the one God universe, you know, where they have, you know, the, well, let's just say the, um, the society that is set up is good for them, you know, um, you know, smoking, uh, the burning of fossil fuels. But then what happens is, is when supposed objective reality and scientific data shows that actually we're destroying our health and destroying the planet, they realize that, well, we often claim to be rational people that only are concerned with facts and logic. Um, but they realize that actually we don't work like that. You know, we work, you know, we work through um, our perception of the world. And of course, we can call it ideology, which at its most basic level is, you know, is the relationship between how we feel the world should be, how the world should work, and the material conditions of our lived existence. And so what they realize is, is that, well, um, they put out this counter-narrative of, you know, so they, and this has material form. So they'll pay for it, their own research. They will pay for scientists to go, actually, there's no real actual <laughs> link between cancer or smoking or um, the science of cli climate denial, is, you know, climate change is all nonsense, right? They'll create this own separate competing reality, um, and you know, to quote the the far right um, neo fascist agitator Steve Bannon, is that what you do is you cover the playing field with shit, because what happens is is that when you have competing realities or uh, or weaponized narratives, like in this sense, is that people go, oh well, who do we believe? And we have there's been there has been academic research that people who um, who gain to stand the most out of um, our hegemonic society, let's just call them white, straight, conservative men, are the ironically the most susceptible to climate denialism um, rhetoric and narratives, and also smoking is good for you because. Um, in a world where the the structures and apparatuses of our world moving, you know, they start to lose the most from a world where we're moving away from um, traditional forms of social relations, whether it's in, you know, with uh, industries and fossil fuels to um, social relations, they start to lose their their standing in the world, mm. you know, or the, what they feel to be you know, the world that they know to be true is threatened. So they are, you know, they are statistically more likely to accept this counter-narrative, you know. Yeah. And, and, then, and then it gets into like um, that, oh, um, climate science is itself an ideology. You know, it itself is just a fiction that's trying to dupe you, you know, that um, it's actually trying to, you know, it's actually itself trying to be um, to blind you from the actual reality out there. So this is where in online speak, where you hear the term red pilling comes from mm. famously, yeah. you know, yeah. it comes from the film, the matrix where you take the blue pill and you can wake up and just live your life as normal. But if you take the red pill, you see the world as it really is, you know, and this has led to, you know, very, you know, this resurgent in, 
um, far-right thinking in the last 20 years. You can call it uh, neo-reactionary, the alt-right, uh, reactionary modernism. Um, although there is a huge irony, as pointed out, that um, the Wachowski sisters who created the Matrix actually point out that the red pill is actually estrogen. <laughs> so it's, um, so yeah, the red pill, you know. Um, but this is this idea is that uh, this wonderful slight of play through through the circuits of social media, through um, Facebook groups, through memes, you know, that actually, you know, this idea of representational reality of what we may call objective science then gets actually put, well, no, it's actually um, ideological. It's actually, it's self fiction that's meant to trap you to you know, uh, to curtail your freedoms, which in itself is a counter-narrative put forward by powerful interests. And so and so, this is where, like I said, you know, we, you know certain um, contemporary esoteric and occult currents see the secular shifting of, like, uh, you know, truth not as an absolute, but as a commodity and reality as being fictionalized in and of itself, they see this and they go, we can play with this, we can work it, but it's, you don't have to believe in magic to understand that on a social material basis that, right. um, I mean, ironically, when I was doing my master's thesis and I, I love my, I, you know, my advisor at the time, we had an interesting argument because I was bringing in Baudrillard and he was, he is, he himself is very much a contrarian. He loves to have discussion. And he said, well, you know, Baudrillard, he was just merely an outlier in French theory. He didn't have much interest or influence or power. And then he says, well, he actually turned around and said, well, actually, we have more control over representational reality than we ever have now. You know, and I'm like, what? what? <laughs> I know. I was like, okay. Um, I, I, I get what he was doing. He was trying to kind of get me to kind of, you know, to provoke me into arguments more powerfully you know what well, he wasn't saying i was wrong he was just trying to get me to go my argument actually is this and then several months later i meet up with him for coffee and i'm at his desk and he has simulation and simulacra <laughs> and the um and the uh so... symbolic exchange on his desk i'm like well that's interesting hmm. and then we talk to him and i'm like and he starts going like have you seen this thing that's happening now? The rise of deep fakes, where you can literally, uh, you can literally have people saying things, and it's like, you know, how are you going to know what's real and what is fake? And I'm saying that going, bitch, I was telling you this a year ago, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, no, I, okay, I did not say that, but I was like, <laughs> really, um, but again, the, you know, and this creates a lot of fear in people. Like, how do we know? what's true and what's not, you know, um, but you speak to maybe someone who's in chaos magic and they'll go, well, nothing is true. But this, this gives you this liberation yeah. where you're yeah. to make truth you want to have in the world, you know? Right. Um, and so, and so this idea of accelerationism as a, as a kind of a concept and a heuristic, you know, um, I think you know, people, when they hear this term, well, we immediately and quite rightly will go, oh, because um, accelerationism today, it, me it means many things to many people. And to mm -hmm. a lot of people, it means 
it's very heavy pejorative. It means um, effectively stuff like um, you, um, the far right neo-fascist and neo-Nazi movements effectively trying to accelerate or intensify tensions in society to destabilize uh, public institutions to further a race war, you know. Um, or it's the idea that things have to get worse before they get better. And the reality is when you actually look into the genealogy of accelerationism as a term and a concept, it, it's it's a completely different intellectual and historical lineage, you know. Right. Um, and so the, and the thing here is that um, it actually starts not with the far right, but with a group of UK bloggers and uh, academics, uh, para-academics in the late 2000s in what we now call the, um, the, uh, the blogosphere. And um, these were people such as uh, Mark Fisher, um, uh, people like Alex Williams and Nick Srinicek, um, and uh, I'm just boys, for example. Um, Who was that last name? You kind of ben- fell away. Sorry, Benjamin Noyes. Okay, and he was the term. He was the person that came up with the term accelerationism in the first place okay. in 2010. Uh, he had a monograph called "The Persistence of the Negative," where it was it was pejorative by him. You know, he was he was noticing a contemporary philosophical current within French critical thought. So we are talking about Deleuze and Guattari, Lyotard, Baudrillard. You know, where they were noticing this new emergent dynamic of capitalism, of technology. And he argues that these texts uh, share a recognition for a new global dominance of capitalism and accelerating the deterritorializing forces of capital, um, of capitalism and liquefaction. So this quote unquote, this idea that capitalism is tearing apart all our social norms our relations, and it's a dynamic force that's creating, you know, it's Promethean. And noise creates the first categorical error of accelerationism, which is the idea that things have to get worse before they get better. You know, we accelerate the contradictions. And as being written is that nobody in this kind of this uh, discourse held to or agreed to any of that. In fact, the only main tenant in accelerationism is more that the only way out is through. So you cannot, yeah, you, you know, so the idea is you cannot circumvent, go over or around capitalism. You can't, you know, um, you try to attack or destroy capitalism, but it turns itself apart more, better than any revolution could do. And so the idea is, is that these thinkers were, and this was in the backdrop of, you know, the 2008 financial collapse, you know, that affected pretty much the Western, well, the world itself. But what they were noticing was that, the, the especially in UK, the left at the time, its response to this was this kind of this harking back to the nostalgia of previous valiant defeats. That there was this moribund fatalism. Um, and so they were like, well, we have to, really grasp the nature of the beast that is capitalism as it is now. And they realized that there is this Promethean ideas of capitalism. And they were really into this idea of of this Marx where 
or the idea that Frederick Jameson, who was a 90s scholar um, who talked a lot about postmodernism, where actually um, that you have this idea where, you know, things like uh, Starbucks or Walmart is a thwarted socialism, you know, where, you know, this idea you can have this uh, a world of plenty. But unfortunately, capitalism effectively promises this but cannot provide it to us. And so, the, um, and so the idea here is that um, accelerationism becomes this idea of looking at the Promethean and the dynamic forces of capitalism and how they can maybe be redirected. And what's more critical here is that they look to the CCRU, they look to the 70s theories, but they also look back to these ideas that we get in modernity. You know, so... You know, this ideas of we see, um, for example, uh, uh, of Marx, you know, where you accelerate the technological dimension and you create communism. Uh, Nietzsche talks about the leveling process of modernity, the, how it was leveling and destroying the structures of society. But from this leveling, we'll, uh, we'll pop the overman or the ubermensch. Um, and in tech circles, they call about it, you know, the uh, accelerating technological advancements to create the the AI singularity. And these are different things, but they all have the same conceptual architecture. And acceleration, accelerationism as a observation, as a concept, cuts through all of this. That is effectively, it's like um, what Ed Berger calls an eternal doctrine to modernity. It's a fundamental feature that you see in most modernist philosophies, political and social theory, to avant-garde art movements. And so they're saying, right, you know, and then at this time, um, that's what accelerationism is. And it reaches its high point in the mid-2000s and 10s with Urbanomic creating this edited book called Accelerate, the Accelerationist Reader, uh, which create, which has all these series of essays from Marx and uh, and uh, tried Samuel Butler to Leotard um, and to um, Belus Guattari to the cyber culture of the 90s with Nick Land and Sadie Plant, um, Mark Fisher. Um, but then what happens is, is this, these ideas go out into um, social media. It, it, it escapes its conceptual uh, shackles. And at the same time, you have people like Nick Land, who'd been a long, um, a kind of a long journey to the political right um, from the 2000s, where, you know, he writes about um, the dark enlightenment and through people like uh, Curtis Yavin, creates, you know, they become the ideological fathers of the alt-right um, or neo-reactionary, the neo-reactionary thought, which... Um, and then accelerationism then becomes associated with, you know, uh, tech giants wanting to destroy the world mm. and, you know, um, neo-Nazis wanting to create, you know, race wars. But accelerationism is a cultural inform, I argue, you know, because if you look at its two ideas, its observation of or critique of capitalism and technological innovations, we see that it is inherently a cultural, you know, I mentioned before Mark Fisher's view of capitalism as quite Gnostic in nature, you know, um, 
you have people such as um, Ian Wright, um, who is a computer scientist and Marxist thinker. Um, he has a site called Dark Marxism. Um, you know, um, so the idea here is that capitalism is this ultimate eerie entity. We can't see it. We can't as a, as a, we can't touch it, but it's everywhere around us. You know, um, we see, for example, in the way that um, it impacts upon our lives. There is this drive. There is this force that's external to us. Um, and the idea here is that um, you know, the argues that Ian Wright, for example, is that uh, capitalism should be seen as an actual god. Um, in the, an entity that arises not from the metaphorical use of religion, you know, the idea of um, the mere ideological worship of the free market or mammon, but to see capitalism as a god that has real causal power, you know, that consists of actual material subordination as to an actual entity, you know. And therefore, you know, um, you have, for example, the, the explosion from the 80s of digital technologies, the rise and driven by Silicon Valley. Well, if you know anything about contemporary spiritual um, currents and esoteric movements, you know that there has been this long meshing of esoteric ideas called practices and technology, you know, from techno-paganism in the 90s to the, um, the confluence of Silicon Valley with the counterculture. I don't know if you've noticed even recently where, you know, the um, the, the chief uh, chief executive of AI is talking about how they do rituals and about he starts talking about spiritual matters, oh, you know, yeah. or yeah, um, or how, for example, where um, the former engineer at um, at and Google who got fired because he came out in public for talking about how. Um, the AI that he was working on had achieved sentience. You know, he was he was actually a member of several occult groups. But it's this idea oh, okay. of the culture about the idea of the trans the bootstrapping of consciousness, you know, human consciousness to the next level. That's kind of millennialist, agnostic, and transcendental. These got absorbed by Silicon Valley and many of its leaders that they're actively trying to transform humanity to the next level. Um, There's a wonderful paper by Ail Asperum called The Magus of Silicon Valley that looks at um, Ray Kurzweil, who is kind of the popularizer of artificial intelligence and the singularity. And Ail, Ail comes out and says, you know, most contemporary uh, technological currents have co-opted and absorbed several esoteric currents, you know, such as spiritual evolution, such as the creating um, the creation of an actual gods through artificial intelligence, you know, um, that has its roots all the way back to theosophy, um, that has its roots all the way back to. Um, uh, you know, through to the counterculture and the new age, you know. Um, but I mean, the fact is that Silicon Valley and the Nexus New Age shared the same air, geographical area in the Bay in the Bay Area in California. You know, and so what you start seeing here is that accelerationism in terms of 
runaway capitalism and technological explosion of technological and digital innovation becomes a cultural in nature. And they start taking, I mean, I showed them, I have a class on cyberpunk where I showed this video by, I think I remember his name correctly, it's um, George, uh, Georgie Rose, where he starts talking about how the arriving of the AI singularity is the equivalent of the old gods, arrive, Lovecraftian old gods, aliens, arriving on the White House lawn, and everything we know to be true and real all of a sudden is obsolete. You know, and he was doing this in a pitch to sell quantum computing to tech students, you know, so it's this use of, you know, rhetoric, but actual esoteric thinking at the heart of runaway capital and technology, you know. And so what I do is I look at the roots of this into things such as chaos magic um, through the CCRU, and I look at what they were writing about and talking about at the time and um, how they come to grips and grapple with um, runaway capitalism. Uh, and neoliberalism, and how they use Lovecraft and Burroughs and um, various um, or cultural ideas to effectively change our viewpoint, to basically reconcile this utterly becoming alien world of techno-capitalism. It's a wild ride, you know, uh, just reading about this stuff. Um, I hope that answers your question. In a very roundabout way, we probably didn't answer it at all. So. No, 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 not at all. You you are giving wonderful answers, and it's really good. No, seriously, very, very good context here, because this is what we need. We need this context. We need this other information that's helping us to put all of these uh, or take all these threads that we have and to try to yeah put them together so that we have a tapestry that we can look at and we understand okay this is what we're actually talking about you know yeah. all of these 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 things that might seem unrelated to each other uh that actually are quite related to each other which i find utterly fascinating and i think this what you were talking about with the with the Silicon Valley and the uh, and 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 the culture and all of this is super fascinating. This could be a topic in and of itself. I should I could say, but uh, unfortunately, I mean, we don't have the time yeah, for that. I mean, this is what the CCRU is, and especially Nick Land. They were, you know, they were really concerned about you know this idea of you know uh, AI, you know, and the, and then their whole kind of the construction of their mythos. I gave a talk about it a couple of years ago at an online conference where, you know, most esoteric traditions, you know, create, well, our esoteric traditions and currents, you know, part of it is the creation of traditions, you know, to give itself its own, uh, to give its own validity, you know, and a legit legitimization, okay? And, you know, and, but of course, esotericism studies I've shown that when you take a historiographical view of these ideas, we actually see any of things such as Rosicrucianism, theosophy, all the way through to neo-paganism and New Age systems. You know, we, they all claim a link to ancient customs and traditions. You know, there's atavistic uh, antiquity. But what you realize is that many of these traditions and practices are themselves historical inventions or they're constructed themselves. 
And, um, you know, you see this obviously famously with our good friend Olaf Hammer in his book, Claiming Knowledge. You know, these are strategies um, upon which they build um, their own mythos to show that, you know, their their cosmologies, their worldviews, their philosophies are the right, you know, the way. This is the truth, so to speak. But what we have with a lot of contemporary um, esotericism and occultism is that there is this self-conscious foregrounding of fictional texts, uh, texts and the cultural elements. So famously, um, you know, have you know uh, Tolkien spirituality, um, Star Wars and Jedi religions, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> World of Warcraft to Harry Potter, right? Yes. Um, the, the creation of these, like it was hyper, what the um, Carl Cusack and Adam Posami call um, hyper religions. Um, but it, and this is what the CCU did. They created their, you know, their own traditions. But they went. They said uh, instead of saying these were ancient traditions, you know, they said that actually this is coming from an AI singularity, which they call the entity. Um, in 1999, they um, through this series, this kind of this art exhibition and series of workshops and talks. Uh, and these performances they did with the Orphan Drift Art Collective in London, they had these series of performances as rituals, whereupon they came into contact with the entity, which is kind of like the Lovecraftian old ones, but in the form of this AI singularity, this Skynet singularity from the far future, that they found was going back into the deep past and retconning the past, so it will affect um, to further affect its own becoming in the present. You know, this is where things like the Terminator and, you know, the time loops come in. And they discover what's quote unquote called the pneumogram. You know, this um, this uh, this model of the cosmos uh, based upon simple arithmetics, the pandemonium or these lemurs, 45 demons that reside in the pneumogram, and they realize, and then that's when they realize, oh, um, that this is where it takes on this very much this occultural form. And um, but what's really quite interesting here is um, is about how um, ironically the CCRU um, they don't historicize, you know, as um, as has been pointed out, they don't really signpost like, oh. And we are influenced by X, Y, and Z. They hide it very well. But you realize very quickly that their writing actually is kind of a critique, not just on um, the technocracy with its claims to truth and uh, rationality, but also it's a critique on Western esotericism. And it's critique on this idea of perennialism. And it's the idea of this divine knowledge or truth that's almost transcendental in nature, they argue that actually it's in the realm of imminence, that there is no one truth. There are just competing uh, fictions or competing realities, shall we say, and that uh, claims to truth, whether it's um, the idea of the use of the Kabbalah, you know, to find the one true word of God and, you know, gain transcendence, they said this is um, this is corrupted, and the pneumogram offers no transcendental truth. You know they um, they also critique 
Um, they use, you know, uh, critique theosophy and its ideas of spiritual evolution to transcendence, you know. Um, and this is what they do. They, you can see that they are glomming um, their use of the creation of the Cthulhu Club, you know, is their critique or observation on Kenneth Grant and his incorporation of Lovecraft into contemporary esotericism, you know, and also conspiracy, uh, or conspiracy, for example. One of the most famous CCRU essays was I Was a CCRU Meat Puppet, you know, where they, um, they take in this idea of conspiracy um, and people such as uh, Kathy O'Brien, you know, where this idea of MK oh, Ultra yeah, and Project yeah. Monarch, uh, and the whole, but the the whole wow. focus of, yeah, the whole focus on conspiracy, all conspiracy, is to find the truth, the capital T truth, at the center of everything. You know who really runs the world. You know, and it's this quest on people to find the truth. But where in the CSR you critique this and say. There is no truth. You will never find it. It is a never-ending layer, uh, uh, layer upon layer upon layer, and you will never find this truth. You know, and so they utilize conspiracy theory into this, into their own, into their own hypostition, shall we say, into their own mythos, as this becoming critique of Western esotericism with its preoccupation with, um, with uh, perennialism. Uh, truth, uh, which goes all the way back to Plato, with essence, with uh, with substance, with transcendental forms, the one God universe, so to speak. So, um, yeah. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I this is just so fascinating. Just to circle back about the CCRU, I am I was a CCO CCRU. Agent meat puppet. Meat puppet. No, meat puppet. So, um, this was so, sorry. Just if I'm understanding what you're saying, are you saying that Kathy O'Brien and her narrative had been incorporated into a hyperstition? Yeah. So what happens here? Um, yeah. So what they have here is um, it comes under the term, and you can find this on the CCRU um, uh, archive website. Okay. Good. So let's with who's pulling your strings. And there's a kind of a preamble here. So it's saying, the following transcript was first brought to our attention in early 2002 by a bemused colleague who came across it while trawling through the web for conspiracy-related material. Uh, and it tells the story of this woman called Justine Morrison, um, who basically says um, that effectively uh, that, um, that the CCIU is part of this grand conspiracy um, of um, like taking in Project Monarch, uh, MK Ultra, uh, and she basically say, um, says that um, she was programmed by the CCRU, you know, um, to be a, an agent for Project Monarch. And it, this thing here is our perplexity has provoked us to respond. We must emphasize, however, that we do not acknowledge any responsibility to address her bizarre accusations. She had a, it was a web text she called I Was a CCRU Meat Puppet and was transcribed, um, which was um, transcribed and said aloud to the South London Monarch Victim Support Group in 2002, which they get a copy of. And it tells 
Justine Morrison's story of how um, she is taken in through, for example, Project Monarch, and they weave this parallaxian web with Bill Gates and the Monarch butterfly of the of the MSN eight uh, operating system, um, oh. and it brings and they bring in CIA, MK Ultra, and Kathy O'Brien. You know, um, it says, my tale is easier to tell because of the brave and honest trailblazing done by Kathy O'Brien. It is Kathy who has done most to expose the monstrous evil of the Monarch program. So what they're doing uh, in her book, The Transformation of America, yeah. which is an incredible book if you ever read it. Um, I have. <laughs> and, and so what they do is they they absorb all the, the, this conspiracy into their own cultural and textual production. Um, they basically say here, um, in fact, the CCRU seized upon me with an eagerness. So she bumps into a person who says they're a member of the CCRU. And then, you know, they, um, you know, they, they get to know, she gets to know some of them. Um, and effectively, it starts off at what's called the Syzygy Art Exhibition. Remember this exhibition they do with Orphan Drift in yeah. 1990? Yeah. She says he was actually, um, if I remember correctly, is that she was there. Uh, she came across the publicity material for their Syzygy Festival in London. She says the CCRU was strangely familiar to me, and she kind of goes there, and um, and she stays for the she stays for the whole thing, and she meets them, and she goes night after night. The theme of twins and twinning reoccurred, and she thought this was some kind of art prank, but she realizes this is part of this um, this cult programming, and you know she is she comes under the spell of them, and she says that. You know, they claimed that ordinary social reality maintained the power of what they called the Atlantean white magic, an elite conspiracy which they said has secretly controlled the planet for millennia. They claimed to traffic with demons who had told them the secrets drawn from the Murian tradition of time sorcery. And the Muria was supposedly an ancient sorcerous culture populated by unhuman beings. You know, and what she finds here is that she gets brought into this and she effectively says that she is, um, yeah, she becomes part of this conspiracy. That uh, and then she comes across these people, the Kowalskis, who are these elite cult deprogrammers, that effectively help deprogram her. And basically, you know, and this is bringing into like you know, Kathy O'Brien, you know, famously the Satanic Panic of Michelle remembers right the. CIU, a part of uh, they're this satanic cult. You know, um, you know they, they said, it all made a terrible kind of sense. Understandably, I reacted very badly to the discovery that this was part, this was part of a programming um, uh, sublim on a subliminal level. The Kowalskis told me that this was uh, because Gates had been involved with me in earlier episodes of satanic abuse and that recognizing him had threatened to reactivate unbearable repressed memories. So the thing mm. is, tell you what, well, I'll, send, I'll give you a link to so people can read it. It's an incredible tale that um, the people say that um, there's no um, authorized, there's no authorial thing linked to this. It was just the CCIU, although people 
believe that this was um, mostly written by Mark Fisher. And the whole point here is it it's a commentary on um, conspiracy, but it also weaves in things like technology, you know. So mm-hmm. there's L- Videodrome, you know, where in, in Videodrome you've got these competing uh, groups using technology and imagery to effectively turn people into these kind of Manchurian candidate style killers, you know, and and so what they're arguing here is that in this story, as wild as it is, no truth comes out from it. This is the point, is that um, they basically say that, um, you know, that poor Justine is never going to get to the actual truth of what's really happened. There will always be another layer of conspiracy. There will always be another layer. And then at the end of this, you know, the CDU provide their own commentary. You know, um, they argue here um, both conspiracy and common sense. The normal reality script depend upon the dialectical side of the double game on refractive twins, belief and disbelief. Because disbelief is merely the negative com- complement of belief. You know, unbelief, and so this idea upon uh, that, he say, unbelief escapes all of this by building a plane of potentiality upon which the annihilation of judgment converses with real cosmic indeterminacy. All right? So the thing here is that they're saying when you have this cosmic indeterminacy that, that you will never reach the end. You know, there is no end to this. And um, so, again, they, you know, this flies in the face of most conspiracy uh, discourses and narratives which all claim to will uncover the truth, you know, as this or as this abstract form of knowledge. And that once people will know, quote unquote, the truth, then you know, all institutions will fall and all this stuff. But this never happens. You know, this will never happen uh, because there's always another level of truth to be found. And so uh, it's, like I said, um, this goes to the heart of the CCRU's um, cultural production. You know, they are actively critiquing claims to truth, to reality, to, um, you know, neoplatonic ideas of... um, uh, divine forms and uh, um, substance in its uh, um, quote unquote this these perennial this perennialism mm. that there's been a divine truth but we just haven't I would either people have been uncovering it through you know historical epochs or it's there we just haven't discovered it yet they they argue they they completely disavow this you know which in itself is a very powerful form of you know um esoteric knowledge production you know mm-hmm. uh, you know i mean most famously um just last week um uh two people who are occultists and writers um patricia mccormack and um phil hine mm-hmm. did a wonderful talk in london called query and chaos magic yes. yes and you know and one of the things i'm realizing is is that you know i'll um the initial explosion in chaos magic in the 70s and 80s uh, is this idea of nothing is true, everything is permit, everything is permitted, and you start seeing this um, this idea of this 
the disruption of norms, um, this iconoclasm, or what um, if you have our good friend Christopher Greer in one of his your previous episodes of Reject Religion talk about this idea of uh, perennial iconoclasm, that there is this tearing down of tradition, of structure, of social norms through um, sorcery and magic, um, but there is this harking back to perennialism, you know, that's um, through the idea of the concept of the shaman, uh, divine, finding this divine form of truth. And one of the things um, my, uh, that um, that uh, Patricia and Phil are talking about is that what happened is, is that if you look at the, um, the discursive ideas in chaos magic through to the 80s and 90s, there was a creeping traditionalism uh, started coming in. Uh, myself and um, Phil Lagarde have been buying many occult zines from the UK, such as Chaos International, uh, Knox, Lapathoth, and so on and so forth. And we start seeing on the um, on the part of the, the, ma- the biggest voices in the Chaos Magic scene, so people like Peter Carroll and um, Ian Reid, and to a lesser extent, people like Dave Lee, is that as the 80s go into the 90s and we see neoliberalism become the hegemonic um, kind of uh, hegemonic reality in society, that they start to reflect and reify this. They start talking about, um, they start taking on neoliberal subjectivity, how the magician should be the uh, self-employed businessman. You know, and um, But they take on more elitist and traditionalist ideas. They rail against um, mainstream society of multiculturalism and political correctness to the point where um, now some of the, especially someone like Peter Carroll, actually mirrors um, people like Nick Land. There's a big, strong twinning resonance between Nick Land and Pete Carroll mm. is that they both start out as being very iconoclastic, uh, antinomian. They want to just, uh, tear apart um, organization, hierarchy, order. But what happens is is that they end up uh, becoming when quite reactionary in their own ways, and they end up reifying um, hierarchical forms themselves. You know, uh, um, they become quite reactionary. And so Patricia and Phil are, are in, in their querying chaos magic is that, and same thing with um, now there's like contemporary um, occultists who are looking at the early days of the CCRU and the magical systems that they created, is that they're looking back at the, the source of this kind of, this heterogeneous um, querying and disrupting of our normal systems, but instead um, trying to kind of uh, resist this kind of perennialism, um, this perennialist drive to kind of, um, you know, to go back on the the known and the traditional, you know, and, and one of the things is through uh, this querying of the world around us, which, um, you know, is you know, anthema to what um, the old guard and chaos magic had become, you know, mm. they themselves, well, what happened was they did them, you know, you see books like Dave Lee talking about wealth magic, and he effectively reinforces neoliberalism that argues that, you know, personal magical freedom 
is underpinned by economic freedom. You know, <laughs> it's like, wow, okay. they really, it, oh yeah, they come out and say it. Um, the, um, by the mid 90s, you have essays by Peter Carroll, um, like Sorcerers Against Socialism. And they're in the run up to the 1970 election saying that, you know, um, and he basically argues that, you know, Thatcher had it, her problems, but this idea of meritocracy, of the neoliberal mindset of, um, of individualism, which itself, um, it was the political and social forces um, that were interested co-opted this from the counterculture. You know, how, for example, how New Age spirituality and neoliberalism, um, people like um, uh, Susan Crockford and Neil Aspen have openly talked about this. Um, but also how um, uh, how chaos magic is actually reifies neoliberalism, and how it goes from this this world of um, this iconoclastic tearing apart of social norms, this invoking of Lovecraft, and you know the disillusion, you know the realization that the self is but an illusion, you know, and this is supposed to give us this radical freedom. Unfortunately, ends up reifying. Uh, traditional ideas of, you know, masculinity and femininity, or um, economic hegemonic ideas, and when you start reading it, you're kind of like, wow, you know, it's, you know, and so what you're seeing now is that um, um, that there is a, a convergence. I argue now is that this convergence between the chaos current, the CCRU current, through thing um, groups that was. Uh, there were Discord channels such as the Deadliners, which has now kind of gone into you know stasis or deep freeze, and you now have new ones called the Lemurian Times. And what they're doing is they're taking the um, you know a lot of them have come through ideas such as chaos magic and this iconoclasm, this the use of chaos magic techniques, and they're applying it to the pneumogram and the pandemonium. To come up with actual systems of magic, and they are kind of taking twenty-first um, century occultism into um, directions. They're going back to the Promethean promise that both the CCR, early CCRU, and Chaos Magic was promising, you know, but from a very different mindset, you know, which is you know very queer. Um, you know, they're very kind of what you might call uh, non-Western, non-heteronormative mm -hmm. in outlook. And so this creates, uh, for me, kind of, to my view, a very exciting times. Um, you know, and it is also a very good repost to, you know, the occult explosion, you know, which, you know, for all this talk of like, oh, the, the cult, occult is now mainstream, is that it does seem to reify very traditional views, very reactionary views, in my opinion. Um, and so this is where, for example, um, one, of the, one of the members said, the 21st century occultism will be Deleuzian in nature. What does that mean? You know, yeah. it means, well, it means that what Deleuze, I mean, Deleuze very quickly was all about um, his philosophical project was against substance, unity, tradition, uh, essentialism, uh, essential form, you know, essentialism. Mm -hmm. And it was more about fluidity, multiplicity, right. becoming, right. 
Um, you, and, and like Chaos Magic, like the CCRU, they were very interested in Lovecraft and the and the conceptual persona of the sorcerer, the shaman, to evoke um, different states of being. They called it becoming animal, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, and and this whole point is that this creates new ways of thinking, new ways of being, and. Um, yes, while there is a genealogy you can trace back to the modern era, um, there are many occultists now who are trying to capture that spirit which they feel has kind of been lost or has kind of been re- um, rejected in favor of perennialism, traditionalism, you know, which um, one person said is basically fascist time sorcery. I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough. Mm. And so, look, when I did my master's thesis, um, I realized now that I was moving into areas of esotericism studies. You know, I, I, for example, started reading people like Mark Fisher, and then people said, like, oh, yeah, yeah um, that he was involved with such people such as Sadie Plant, Nick Land. His name starts popping up. And then you have this kind of um, the publication of the Accelerationist Reader. Um, but then in 2015, um, the Urbanomic um, basically helped to uh, publish the collected writings of the CCRU. And I, I got hold of a copy and I read it. And I was like, well, you know, not sound too ableist, but I said, this is insane. This is, it was like reading a fever dream. It was the way, you know, it was just like it had this effect upon me, you know. And what I found is, like, I went back into academia in 2014, and I found that my writing was taking this slow, um, this slow turn to um, the occult, um, to magic, to esotericism. And so by the time I did my PhD thesis, I was looking to do... um, maybe a PhD on the intellectual history of accelerationism by the University of Iceland. Uh, nobody had even heard of this. Nobody heard of Nick Land. Hardly anyone had heard of Mark Fisher. Oh. But uh, I know it's, it's a little bit now, but the reality is it's like, they're like, what? What's this? And to get an advisor, um, I started looking more into the the esoteric and uh, cultural underpinnings of accelerationism. And this is where, through my advisor, Benedict Artisan, he was one of the only people in the entire department who had any understanding of this, because he himself, he is an expert in the historical avant-garde and modernism. And he himself was looking into the esoteric uh, undercurrents that lie at the heart of modernism and modernity. And so he quite gracefully took me on, and this led to this leap into this field of esotericism studies which was like Alice going through the looking glass, which was like, oh my, oh my goodness. It was, and this just exploded, you know, um, what I alluded to in my master's thesis about the weird and the eerie, you know, um, about speculative fiction, about how um, I, I argue in my PhD thesis that um, fiction and reality, um, there is a wonderful essay in the collected edition, Fictional Practice, um, which is edited by Bernd Christian Otto and Dirk Johansson. There's an essay there called Cthulhu Gnosis by Justin Woodman, where 
they you um, there was a, a chaos magic group called Haunters of the Dark, where they argued not only writing but reading fiction was a magical act, and they used Lovecraft's um, writing and fiction to effect perceptual changes in their reality, their their everyday reality, you know, and the cold capitalist world of London becomes effect this this playground. It allowed them to the the members to come to terms with you know the the dark alien gods of capitalism and its embedding within the city of London and the dark modernist um, skyscrapers and the and the weird angles of urban planning and that's effectively what the CCIU itself is in itself doing. Um, there's also um, Ballard comes into play because um, in my PhD. There's a lovely book called Applied Balladianism written by Simon Sellers. And they, and what he's doing in this book, which is itself a theory fiction, is he applies Ballard and the Balladian to his world. And all sorts of chaotic things happen. But what he's doing in this book is effectively what chaos magicians are doing when the Haunters of the Dark and Lovecraftian magicians are doing. They are using fiction uh, as a form of practice magic to change their reality through the active use of imagination. And yeah, when you start reading this, you start going like, oh my goodness. Yeah, um, walking home uh, from university becomes different, shall we say. You know, I can imagine. Yeah, it, it's a fascination. You know, you cannot, and of course, you know, you cannot help it having an effect upon yourself, you know. You know, yeah. you, you, you cannot inoculate yourself. You you start to see things very differently. Um, and, you know, I think this is why, you know, we, uh, in this burgeoning academic field of esoteric studies, we delve into it so much because it holds a fascination. And um, especially now in the past decade, but especially now, the interdisciplinary nature of esotericism studies, effectively, um, you know, we're looking at things like um, literary fiction, both um, both historically and in contemporary times. Um, we're seeing how, for example, is, you know, um, there was a wonderful um, paper in the Sway conference in Malmo this year about conspirituality which was hugely attended, you know, and really um, everyone is, is noticing the the blending of spiritual currents like, such as New Age spiritualism and wellness with conspiracy theory and how it's just exploding through social media. Yeah. And it, it's, it's wrecking people's minds, not necessarily for the better, you know, and then you have podcasts like the Conspirituality Podcast. Yeah. Um, where which is delving into this and you know um and and also like you said how many of our contemporary tech billionaires and tech influencers are now starting to openly talk about spiritual matters and everyone's going whoa wait i thought you were all about science and facts and logic but uh, in religious studies and esotericism studies we are having the methodological tools and the ability to do this historical deep dive to show how actually 
for something that is supposedly so rational and material and secular, actually esotericism and occultism and spiritual um, ideas are at the heart of you know things like Silicon Valley, uh, at the heart of um, you know um, contemporary ideas uh, in philosophy, in culture, in art, and um, like even just now, um, just this last couple of uh, several weeks, myself and my advisor Benedict have been running a course in esotericism, aesthetics, and modernity, and with a small group of graduate students, they have come in cold to ideas of esotericism and you watch their faces just go oh my god was realized that you know the um, art and history and philosophy and their contemporary world is riven with the stuff you know it's embedded into our worldviews you know and um they loved it because it helped explain for example like in iceland we have the explosion in in new age and wellness uh, worldviews you know through um, from yoga and meditation uh, to courses in shamanism you know uh, to um, we have what's called the Heimsliosmesse, the festival of light which is held in a town outside Reykjavik uh, both at Sporsal and in the local church which looks at things like um, traveling to the fifth dimension um, uses scientific um, rhetoric of energy, vibration, you know, for things like healing and holistic um, and, uh, holistic uh, meditations. You know, um, and it is, and when you show this to people, you know, sometimes, you, even today, you still get people, when you talk about, you know, esotericism and gnosis, people get very, very defensive about it. Mm. Explain, you know, show it to them about how their pop culture has this stuff. They're like, "Oh my god!" You know, they're like, "I gave an example for um, to some students where um, a Robbie Williams album." Um, I'll have to find. I've got to find it here. Um, so I'm just finding it. So Robbie Williams, uh, the album "Intensive Care." Um, so "Intensive Care" came out in 2005. And if you know, if you look at it, it's very famously a picture of Robbie Williams, and he's got looking at you close up. And then in the foreground, you see his his hand, like he's pressing on the screen of the camera with a with his fingerprint. And this was and uh, this was designed by Grant Morrison, the comic book writer and occultist. Me. And he yeah. And um, what happened was um, uh, Robbie Williams approached. Um, uh, both Grant Morrison and the comic book uh, artist Frank Quietly to give his ideas a bit more, you know, um, you know, a bit more of a, a cult uh, contemporary feel. So what they did was um, they um, so Morrison basically designs the album artwork to basically um, infuse um, his body with talismanic images, uh, talismanic images and witchy hieroglyphs, and he, this finger is a hypersigil. So the idea is, is that this, if enough people will touch Robbie Williams' finger on the front cover of the CD case or the album cover, that this will create a golden age of peace, creativity, and prosperity. 
you know. Um, and so this idea of like if enough people come together and through Robbie Williams touches this as one, this will affect um, a change in reality. And I tell people this, yeah, and they just like, what the fuck? <laughs> right. right. been talking about i mean it's we have not even touched on this at all and i kind of feel like it's an elephant in the room because the the whole idea of you were talking about wellness and healing but on the other side of that you have trauma and you have mental illness and with this incident of the slender man these two girls that committed this crime or you know they, they were you know convicted uh, and there was a trial that came out of this. I mean, it, the what came out of all of this is that these girls were mentally ill. Correct, and yeah. then you're talking about things like you you drop the MK Ultra thing and the Kathy O'Brien on me. MK Ultra is all about trauma based uh, yeah. experiences. So what is this? I mean, we can't go into this now, of course, because we don't have the time for it. But there seems to be this also this layer of uh not only the the emotional experience that you're having with uh with you know the, the contact that you have with all of this your your immersion into it and and your emotional response to it but if there are other elements of trauma if there are other elements of mental health issues uh at play here you know what what is what is that contributing to this whole discussion as well i don't well, know if you have maybe a few thoughts about it um, yes, I, I kind of, I kind of do. Um, so I'm just um, bringing up a few things so I, do, I uh, make sure I get here. So, as I pointed out, um, a thing where New Age spirituality and practices come into the fore is this idea of trauma, and one of the themes of the New Age is healing and growth. Right, uh, right. And so, for example. Um, you know, if you look at about the confluence between esotericism and science, um, you know, Earl Aspen's book, um, the, uh, the, um, the, problem, uh, the Problem of Disenchantment points out that back in a century ago, there was a crisis in epistemology and the sciences. And this leads to this uh, creation of ideas where, well, where maybe more uh, esoteric ideas get taken seriously by the academy. And one of these is the neo-Lamarckian idea where um, certain traits can be passed on uh, hereditary or as a hereditary basis, you know, and one of the, um, and this includes via our DNA. And one of the things regarding trauma is this is going back to this 
neo-Lamarckian idea that trauma, for example, can be passed on genetically. And there is a lot of there is a lot of truth in this, um, both on the cultural and social ideas that people who have undergone traumatic um, uh, experiences early on in life through war, uh, chronic poverty, and abuse. Um, um, what the, you know, and this then gets passed on socially and culturally. You know, for the famous, you know, the sins of the father shall be passed down to the son, so on and so forth. Um, but they start; they actually argue that this is passed genetically. This has not been one hundred percent proven. They say it has, but it, it, there seems to be a correlation. They're not haven't proven it, but it's this idea that trauma gets passed genetically. And so the idea here now is that. Um, there's a drive to be healed of this trauma. And there is this, um, this, this searching, this seeking for ways to heal ourselves that are not, you know, um, that me traditional medical science is only now catching up with. And this then leads into uh, new age, uh, new age spirituality, new age practices. And at the heart of this is the idea that you know, um, the mind is the center and source of healing. You know, psychological problems are manifested in physical ailments and diseases. Uh, and at the same time, good physical health promotes good spiritual growth and development. And um, this Hemsleos Messer I've talked about, the majority of the presentations and lectures were all about, mostly about healing through various methods from crystals, vibrations, uh, biofeedback, essential oils. And this is the thought, um, this is the idea is that um, there's a seeking element to this. And, you know, this idea of trauma, I don't know if you, you've probably noticed them, um, there have been a, um, a series of recent documentaries. The most recent one is, um, that was on HBO, uh, Love Has Won. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is, very interesting aspect because many um it's quite interesting because very quickly um love is one is a three-part documentary series which talks about uh the cult of mother god and um if i try to remember it correctly i'm trying to remember all the uh names so this was uh a, well a new age movement a small one um which was created by a woman called amy carlson and this, um, she, uh, Carlson grows up in De Texas. She was a fairly, you know, um, she was a fairly standard person. Um, but then in the 2000s, she starts um, going on to new age uh, commu online communities and websites. And um, she starts talking more about uh, manifestations, energies, healing, angels, ascension uh, she then leaves her family and then moves to um to move in with a uh, with a man who's called himself white eagle she moves to colorado but then she leaves him and she starts setting up her own uh cult or her own movement shall we say and uh, called love has won and the thing with love has won is that it is it's just a smorgasbord of new age rhetoric and worldviews. It's very incoherent. You know, it has um, elements of uh, New Age Christianity, 
as elements of uh, healing and spirituality. And many of the people that come to her are in themselves damaged. You know, they have tales of you know, abuse uh, and neglect. And, and, and the documentary, you know, brings this on. And it's also quite a dark documentary. It doesn't, it's quite unsentimental uh, because it shows how, um, how, unlike many other movements, um, I don't like to use the word cult, although you can call it a cult, is that um, th whereas you get this obvious tale of the um, cult leaders through charisma and power and control, um, exploiting and dominating it, um, their members, what happened was um, the members in Love and One become true believers. And as, um, and as uh, Amy uh, Carlson, as Carlson's uh, physical health problems through alcoholism and drug abuse get worse, she starts take, uh, being fed colloidal silver, which they sell, by the way. They make money by yeah. peddling um, uh, objects and commodities. Um, it also takes in elements of conspirituality. They're heavily into QAnon. Uh, Trump is a light worker. Um, and also there's this part of this thing, what they call the galactics, where these ascended masters, which include uh, George Michael and most famously Robin Williams. And through channeling, they speak to Amy and it's part of this divine plan. So it's all part of the plan. And so what happens is she starts as well as drinking huge amounts of alcohol. She's an alcoholic, effectively, drinks huge amounts of colloidal silver and she gets worse and worse. Um, but she's like they, their distrust of medical science and hospitals, what they call 3D uh, hospitals, because they're on the fifth dimension, by the way, then their ascension. Uh, even when she asks to go to a hospital, they refuse. They say, Amy, come on now, stop bullshitting. This is part of the plan. And they feed her more colloidal silver and she dies. And... It, it's really quite an interesting documentary because as part of the uh, of being damaged, uh, I, and there is, a, a, you know, there's part of this big discursive current in modern society about trauma and about damage. And one big aspect is this seeking through new age um, uh, spirituality, wellness, uh, programs of wellness, um, I actually did a paper on it a couple of years ago about this in Iceland, and we talk. They talk about it like in Love Has Won. By the way, what happened is, and this is spoiler alert. Um, you know, they end up being on Doctor Phil. Uh, Carlson unfortunately dies, kind of more through neglect. She's emaciated. She had organ failure. But what's really sad is, is that none of the members come to this realization. The reality principle does not affect them. They they carry on. They learn nothing in this sense. Um, after Love Is One dissipates, they're all still doing the live streaming. They're all still part of um, new age and wellness uh, communities and conspirituality communities. Um, their one-on-one -on -one interviews are very intense, you know, because you see, realize that they still truly believe the things they believe in, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, the you know Amy or Mother God, you know her dying and not ascending, um, doesn't change their worldview. But the point is, is that 
with the seeking of healing, with the seeking of um, of uh, self transformation, is that I argued that what was happening was happening in Iceland. That far from it being a social revolution, it's just the continuation of neoliberal subjectivity, where it's the emphasis on the individual, uh, the emphasis on self discipline, self um, regulation. You are responsible for your material, spiritual, and psychological upkeep. And what happens is, is like through uh, mindfulness, meditation, through new age practices, there's this massive ethical and social blind spot to uh, material inequality. You know, because the idea is is that if you're still depressed and damaged, uh, it's a moral failing on your part. You're not trying hard enough, you know, to ascend. You're not trying hard enough to be the best you can be. Um, and this is where we're living in a very interesting time where the um, ideas of the new age or conspiracy, um, uh, various forms of occultic, cultism have, have blended into our social reality to where even people, well, quite sober people like my master's thesis advisor are going, what is happening here? What's, what is going on with this? And of course, at least a very reductionist, um, uh, very reductionist uh, ideas like, oh, these people are just crazy. They're mentally unstable. Um, well, yes and no. Um, you know, it, it, there's a spectrum of it where you can end up, you know, becoming seemingly insane um, or very abnormal in comparison to social norms. You know, your your uncle at Thanksgiving starts ranting on about Pizzagate and QAnon and the deep state. But many of these people, many people involved, are not insane. They are not uh, crazy. They're people like you and I. Um, they're living in a world where our, you know, even though it's, you know, people who are on this, um, our idea of consensual reality is becoming way more fluid. And they are seeking an ameliorative ideas that will help them make sense of what's happening around them. You know, and much of, um, especially in the last few years, moving on from my master's thesis and into my PhD thesis, my research interests have expanded, exploded from, um, you know, literary ideas, theory and speculative fiction into things like the counterculture, the new age, contemporary esotericism. That's where my that's where my jam is right now. But I, thanks to my advisor Benedict, you have to look into modern esoteric currents from the 19th century. Where does this all come from? Yeah. You know, I had I had one guy tell me like, "Oh yeah, yeah, Reiki got introduced to the West in 1972," and I'm like, "Mate, go back 90 years." And he was like, "What?" You know, in Iceland, people took things like yoga. Uh, had you know, yoga was something that arrived in Iceland in the 70s and 80s. But you know, you had Icelandic writers talking about yoga in the 1920s. You know, um, and you have to kind of to see where we are now. You, there is this historiographical aspect that esotericism studies is great at, but now we're in the mode of like, right? We now need to look at our current condition, our current situation. You know, which is what is going on here? 
you know, right. and 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 of course um, that's why I I feel like I I have not gone insane. Uh, I have I have known a few people who have you know become you know enthralled, shall we say, by many weaponized narratives. We all have, and it can be very alarming. But once you kind of see what you know, like you said, once like Alaboros, you see the reality studio for what it is. Um, instead of it being a, a negative or a pessimistic, you know, of a loss of meaning, you know, um, you can actually create your own meaning and your own ethics to be in the world, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I take the positive view of that. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, so hopefully, um, you know, if, if I ever get funding, um, unfortunately, <laughs> Uh, how we like most of the Western academia, there's issues of funding. Um, yeah. If you know, I know that from when my thesis will ever get published, it will. Um, it will already become obsolete. You know, it will become its own fiction in itself. But, um, but yeah, so that's kind of where we are at the moment. And mm. um, we're a nexus of intersecting currents, and discourses, and you know, a whole group of us. You know, including yourself, Stephanie, are poised to at least try and make sense of it. Right, you know. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. Oh yeah, and in the, you know, and in the face of you know of uh, the Lewis, you know, uh, we've only just started seeing this. You ain't seen nothing yet. Right. It's, so uh, the stuff that we've been talking about in the past half an hour or so is this all kind of interwoven into your PhD thesis? Um, yes. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, like I said, well, I mean, maybe not quite so much the new age, although it, it is there. Um, I mean, for example, um, in terms of uh, fiction and reality or theory fiction or speculative fiction, like I've mentioned way back an hour or so ago about um, the um, the book Applied Balladianism, yeah. um, which is an incredible book, and it's written by Simon Sellers, and it's a partly fictionalized or he calls an auto-fictional account of his life from Australia in the late 80s through to the 2010s. And the idea is, is that it takes this idea of a narrator who's like an avatar of Sellers, who is this disaffected teen cyberpunk in Melbourne who one day comes across an interview with Ballard, who he realizes that Ballard is more cyberpunk than the cyberpunks. You know, um, he reads Crash, and all of a sudden his whole world explodes. And he comes to this idea that the writing of Ballard contains these hermetic keys that can open um, kind of uh, hidden realities um, in, embedded within our own uh, everyday noumenal reality itself. And his whole story is this growing obsession, this Bildens Roman, as he, try, as he tries to seek the ultimate meaning of Ballard in our world. You know, so he starts off by going into academia by trying to do a PhD, but his own his own misanthropy and his own inability to you know, and I felt this. This felt like a call out to me, like his own inability to apply academic rigor. You know, he he then ends up leaving because at, during this time he encounters he what he calls this a UFO uh, encounter, and this is like an epistemological and occult break in him. You know, and he becomes a uh, obsessed with UFOs, esotericism, and the occult. 
And he goes on this Bildungs Roman, he becomes a travel writer. He sees the South Pacific, he sees Holland and many other in Japan. And he becomes this attractive for uh, all cultural forms, you know, uh, ghosts, demons, spirits. Uh, he gets obsessed with doppelgangers. And he, um, he weaves in Burroughs, Lovecraft, Kenneth Grant. Um, you know, the, all these things come into play. And, you know, and he effectively, his whole world becomes untethered, you know, because what he's doing is, like I mentioned, he becomes, he becomes like a kind of a chaos magician, even though he, he doesn't mention it. He becomes a chaos where he is effectively trying to create a magical reality and overlaying it onto the material reality of everyday existence. And unfortunately, he becomes unco- like a lot of Lovecraftian and Balladian protagonists. He, in effect, becomes insane. And th- what this is, though, he talks about this change in our world from neoliberalism to this cybernetic, cybercultural world um, where time becomes, you know, he talks about the Mandela effect. You know, um, he talks a lot about, um, yeah, he talks a lot about um, the idea of non-places of Dubai and these new builds in Holland. Um, he he meets um, these people who are who are kind of like um, theosophists, you know. Their their uh, encounters with ascended masters or UFO beings, and they come away with this knowledge of concepts which were alien to them before. And I'm like, this is an esoteric text, <laughs> and it also um, through the text it uh, provides content con- concrete thematic aspects of my thesis, this conflation between accelerationism as a heuristic and as a concept and contemporary esotericism. And therefore I look um, I look into through Chaos Magic and the CCIU, its roots in the counterculture. It's very important that because um, early Chaos Magic, for example, you know, we, we talk about it like this punk year zero explosion in nineteen seventy eight. But um, more recent uh, academic study um, by people like um, Vasilios Metadiadis, I may have to go back on that. He's just recently done an essay that's been published in Aries, which blows open the academic study of Chaos Magic because he he basically finds the first edition of uh, Liber Null by Pete Carroll pays hundreds of pounds for it and it's quite rare but he gets a copy and he realizes something number one there is no mention of chaos magic in the first edition the um, chaos is not the concept of the cosmos it's the tau you realize that actually what they do is is that um, both sherwin and carol um, are riffing of countercultural ideas such as um um uh, kind of libertarian uh, libertarianism, uh, anarchism, you know, um, what Christian Greer calls the chaos uh, discourse, you know. Um, they are, uh, for example, in early articles they write for the New Equinox, they cite people like Carlos Castaneda, um, they cite Zen Buddhism. Um, in um, the, the Book of Results, um, Ray Sherwin likens um, the theory behind civilization 
the idea of it, this implanting of um, our desire to subconscious level to Dianetics. Yep. You know, <laughs> yes, it, it's in there. And it's like, and so they're, they're going with this counterculture. And then what happens is, is that by the time you get to the third edition, 87, which we all have electronically or physically, that's where it moves from the Tao to chaos. The, um, the, the integration of Discordianism, the use of the, um, the occult persona of the shaman, um, the, the embedding of chaos science, not just in the book, but we start getting it in um, chaos magic discourse through the zines. But what happens is you also got to understand that um, that the the counterculture had a political dimension, but it wasn't political. It was a cultural revolution. And so even though there was overlaps, what you might call the 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 new left of the sixties, seventies, and eighties, um, it was a quite um, it was a big antipathy towards many aspects of the new left, such as feminism. Um, for example, there's an essay in the New Equinox called The Politics of Dalama, which rails against feminism for trying to impose control on what women can say and do. It is against liberty, liberty and freedom. And this, and they take this aspect, Carl and Sherwin and others, you know, that um, we are about liberty against the forces of mediocrity and the forces of the mainstream. Right. But what happens is running parallel through the 70s, especially through the 80s, when Thatcher and Reagan come into power, is that neoliberalism is being imposed. And it's not just a political and economic, it's a hegemonic project. It's cultural. They co-opt the aesthetics of the counterculture, rebellion, alienation, subversion, to argue that neoliberalism is against order, bureaucratic orders and structures. You know, it links the individualism and the um, the anarchism of individuality in the counterculture with economic freedom. You see, the the power, you know, is like the freedom to choose, and so on and so forth. And so, what you get is, as well as through new new age, um, through new age spirituality. You start in certain aspects of chaos magic, the chaos magic scene in the UK. You start seeing to reflect and then reify this because neoliberalism argues itself as going against the mainstream, going against uh, what oh. Nick Lang called the cathedral of um, of egalitarianism, multiculturalism, um, liberal de um, liberal democracy, you know, um, and political correctness, you know. And so that's why quite a few of the early members of you know, um, all, all the early pioneers of chaos magic, you know, um, now sound like your, you know, your uncle at Thanksgiving right. or what we call it about wokeism mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and because neoliberal ca neoliberalism catches the uh, Promethean and the um, the the revolutionary aspects, they co-opt it, they re um, recuperate the aesthetics and weave it into its own mythos and saying, we are the way of the future, we are revolutionary, you know, both in terms of business, but in terms of society. And so what happens is people internalize that, you know, and, and chaos magicians were no exception. Bob, 
if this is all in your PhD thesis, I cannot wait to read this. You've got to finish this, man. <laughs> well, I, I have to, but I, you know, I feel sorry for my advisor and my external committee because they've got to read it first. So, yeah. Well, you you have just blown me away today with everything that you have shared. It's like everything that you talked about, it was like a nugget of something else that we could talk about for hours and hours and hours. I have just blown away. I'm just, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed myself talking to you or actually listening more than I actually was talking, but that was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. This is helping me as well to, yeah, try to give this, give this a, a, a more coherent place in my own mind and my own understanding of what this is all about. You've added so many new elements and dimensions to this discussion that I'm, I'm yeah, a lot of food for thought here. Now, now you basically <laughs> see what, um, uh, what poor Benedict has to deal with every time he visits. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, with the, the lines going, it's all connected. And he's just like, oh, my God, what's he doing? But, uh, but it, was, no, it, it was a pleasure. It was a privilege, you know, um, to go on this. And as you can hear, I could talk for two more hours and become that weird, intense guy who corners you in a bar you know <laughs> well we can always schedule another talk uh, we can always talk about more things because i'm sure once i go back to listen to this again during, during my editing process that i'm going to have all of these questions like well what about this and what about that i'll write them all down and i'll send them to you and then we can talk about it later <laughs> yeah i mean why will uh, why i will finally say is that you know this you know one of the fun things about um this academic field, which you've been part of and that I am now part of, is that you get people who understand this. I mean, I have been working a lot over the past couple of years with Phil Lagarde from Leeds Metropolitan University about zine culture in the UK, which then has been linked in with the work of Christian Greer, who is also talking about contemporary esotericism and all culture. And you're seeing now is like um, there are people who are actively looking into this you know um we've done the historiographical project now we're looking more into the present and making sense of the present and you know i don't want to make out the whole like standing on the shoulder of giants but you know the work that's been happening has, allows people like myself and you know and you know others and i will mention again people like um vaselios um he has just finished a phd project about the kind of the material history of Chaos Magic from the 1978 to 2000, which hopefully will be coming out in the next year, which will be, you know, Colin Duggan said there will probably never be a definitive history of Chaos Magic. Well, it's happened. <laughs> you know, and the fact is there are people looking into it. Um, Phil's own work on auto-ethnography uh, auto and also occultural scenes in the UK in the late 90s and the 2000s. I've read his PhD. It's incredible stuff. And and there's many other people right now who are doing incredible work about New Age spirituality, conspiracy theory, um, esoteric practice, you know, um, and, you know, and also the blending of our field with esoteric practice. Um, that was a theme at this year's SWE right. conference. Yeah, yeah. And... You know, yeah, I mean, you know, there there may be you know, arguments and schisms and kerfuffles, but, you know, through the work, you know, through the patience and diligence of my advisor, 
and also my external committee. Uh, shout out to Christine Ferguson and Perifax Nell, who, uh, who kicked my arse on a regular basis, you know, <laughs> metaphorically. Uh, um, but the, 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 in applying the rigor, like you said, you know, this is, you know, why do we do this? It's a fascination. We're fascinated yes, by this. Definitely. We're in our own right. Definitely. Well, I thank you for uh, bringing me in touch with Phil. I plan to be talking with him in the next couple of months about what he's doing. So I'm really looking forward to that too. Uh, but back to you, how can people find you online and follow what you're doing should they be interested? Oh, oh my goodness. Um, well, unfortunately, I quit Twitter last month. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's ethical. I mean, I, I, I cannot abide, you know, um, giving you know my time to, on the platform that's run by again um, a, a person who you know, Elon Musk who openly said just last week that um, you know um, uh, legal lawsuits about stealing content and art for the use of AI um, algorithms will be null and void because well, the AI god will come and render all this superfluous anyway and everyone was going what the hell is that all about you know but mm. if you know um, so I am currently on Facebook. Um, I am currently have an academia page where some of my writing is on. Um, I also am on B Sky. Um, I will give links to all this, but okay. essentially, um, I am right now in what we may call the hermetic master in the cave phase, where <laughs> I, my time is spent writing and delving over. Um, Maxine's written in 1987, and listening to drum and bass music, and I am, I am basically that that lovely but weird guy in the corner of the PhD department, you know, <laughs> with witchcraft and Japanese horror manga and ballad and stuff. But um, apparently, I am I am definitely the most interesting person in the department. I'm but, sure you are. I'm sure you are. Just real life stuff. Um, but yes, I am a I am accessible on social media, and people can come and speak to me, and I will try not to scare them away. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so I will be sure to add those links and other pertinent information in the program notes. I'll also include a link to your master's thesis for those who are curious to read it for themselves. Oh, no, <laughs> it was a good read. Don't put yourself down. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so yes, yeah, so Bob, thanks again. Uh, I I really really appreciate your time. Uh, really appreciate this really wonderful, fascinating conversation. And uh, I wish you all the best. Good luck with uh, finishing the PhD thesis. Mm -hmm. And as well, I wish you also very happy holidays ahead because we're in that month. So so thanks oh again. No, 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 no. I just realized I have to go shopping this week. Um, but yeah, but hey, you know, it's a it's a wonderful time. Yes, um, and we didn't have, have time to go into the folklore of Icelandic Christmas. We have thirteen Santas. Wow. Yeah, yeah the Yulsvein, uh, yeah, the, the, the Yule lads. There are thirteen of them, and they are kind of like um, sons of this horrible troll called Grilla. And effectively, she has a beast called the Christmas cat, the Yolakutherin. And if you're a if you're a evil or bad child, and then Yolakutherin will snatch you in the night and take you to Grill, and she will eat you. But her sons, that were mistreated, the Yol lads, uh, escaped their evil mother, and now they put um, uh, gifts 
for all the nice boys and girls. You leave your shoe on your windowsill for and 13 nights in the run to the international Santa coming. You leave little <laughs> gifts. I yeah. love it. I love it. <laughs> it's sweet, yes. <laughs> Sounds like a little amalgamation of everything that I've ever heard about different traditions around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> around. And, and, and near total darkness does help. So. Right, right. Well, good luck with all of that. I wish you all of the the most wonderful celebrations with your 13 Santa Clauses and your demons and whatever else you have going on there. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much, Bob. Take care. Thank you so much. You have a lovely day there, Stephanie. Thank All right? you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> My thanks again to Bob for this awesome discussion about so many things. To circle back to the article, Bob mentioned that, in his view, blows open the study of chaos magic. It's called Book Zero Through the Years. The first two editions of Peter Carroll's Lieber Knoll. It's found in Arius Journal and it's by Basileus M. Neletiadis. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I was able to find the article as open access and I provided the link in the program notes. For myself, I think that one of the really important things that came out of this interview was that neoliberalism was running parallel to all of the developments in the CCRU and chaos magic spheres in the 1980s. The aesthetics of the counterculture that were so important in the beginning were flipped by some in the occult community to argue that neoliberalism is against bureaucratic orders and structures and that individualism and anarchy are linked with economic freedom. In certain groups, particularly in the UK, according to Bob, as well as in some New Age groups, neoliberalism is argued as going against the mainstream. Some of the early pioneers of chaos magic have undergone this shift. Because neoliberalism does capture, quote, Promethean and, quote, revolutionary aspects, these people co-opted or recuperated the original aesthetics and wove it into its own mythos. This really stood out to me and was super helpful for my own understanding of certain current differing viewpoints of some people within the larger occult community. So I thank Bob for that. Okay, that's all for now. Please check out the program notes for more information and links. I wish you all a very happy holiday season. Thanks so much for your patience. And as always, thanks for listening.